Coming up this hour, we talk with author Chris Willman, who wrote an article for Variety about Lady A. And then later, we're going to talk about sermon length. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of particulars. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing all that stuff does really help us out a whole lot. Some of you are aware that we actually have a think tank. It's mostly just a collection of some people that I think are uh, really smart, engaging with the world. And a buddy of mine, Jeremiah, sent me an article about Lady A out of Variety, and he says, uh, this is pretty interesting. It could be a cool twist to talk about true advocacy and how it's deeper than just culture virtue signaling. And so we actually have the author, Chris Willman, here on the show right now. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, glad to be with you. Could you just briefly take a a minute or two and introduce yourself first before we dive into this article? Yeah, uh, I am at Variety. I'm features editor and music critic. So I cover the the music business from a lot of angles, from reviews to news, and uh, especially the, the intersections of film and music and TV and music. And uh, a, a lot of uh, country music, that's one of my my beats for sure. So, uh, you know, when this whole Lady Annabelle thing started happening, uh, that was right in my wheelhouse. Right. Well, and I, I imagine, too, there may be some people listening that don't actually know what you're talking about when you say the Lady Antebellum stuff. Could you just kind of give a brief overview on the whole situation and kind of what the article was ultimately about? Sure, sure. It, it's kind of blown up in my world, and I, I see like a whole culture war happening in our comment sections. <laughs> but uh, don't assume that everyone is hip to that yet. Um, so uh, how it all started was, uh, of course, we're aware that – uh, especially in early June, there was this heightened racial consciousness mm-hmm. that kind of made everything that had bubbled under as a racial controversy come to the surface. Mm. And so one of those things was the country trio Lady Antebellum um, reevaluating their name. Mm. You know, and they've been around putting out records for 14 years. And uh, in certain circles, people had said, hey, you know, that name's not cool. Antebellum has a connotation with the South and the slavery era mm-hmm. and plantation life. Uh, but, but you know, people in country music are, are generally pretty nice about not bringing up issues. And so it had never really come to the fore. But all of, all of, all of a sudden, uh, you know, in June, we've got people saying, hey, Lady Antebellum was not a cool name. And the Dixie Chicks, people saying Dixie has a confederacy uh, connotations. So both those acts end up changing their names or, or shortening them. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the Dixie Chicks case, it was, they're now just the Chicks. Right. And with Lady Antebellum, they are now just Lady A. Or are they? Because uh, <laughs> they released this long statement about how uh, they had been awakened or woke, if you will, to the fact that this name was offensive to uh, some people um, uh, and, you know, this, uh, pr- probably more. There aren't a lot of black people in country music, so that was kind of how it <laughs> But suddenly uh, black people hmm. were saying, hey, you know, we're not cool with Annabelle. And so they, they said, hey, we're, we're sensitive to this and we're changing our name to Lady A. 
And that's a nickname we've always been known by anyway, so kind of an easy fix. But not so easy because it turned out there was a black singer who called herself Lady A for longer than they had had the nickname Lady A. And uh, so this immediately became a firestorm and came back and and bit them on the you-know-what because – and and then – you know, even when they were changing it initially, people were saying, well, that's just virtue signaling. The A still stands for antebellum, so what difference does it make? But then, of course, it got worse as soon as it came out. There was this Seattle-based blues singer, Anita White, who had uh, informally used the name Lady A going back at least uh, 20 years in terms of making recordings, further back just playing regional shows, but had never achieved any kind of notoriety mm. outside of the region. You know, she did club shows. She had some records on Spotify that had probably been, uh, you know, in the double digits in terms of you know streaming numbers in any given uh, month or even year. So, you know, very, very obscure. Whether, whether Lady A's organization knew of her or not is open to question. They said they weren't. Um, mm. Uh, so anyway, uh, Lady A saying, hey, you know, this is my name. Why are you stealing a, a black person's name in the name of being racially sensitive? So that's uh, the, kind of the beginning of it. And then it's taken off from there. There's been all these subsequent developments where um, the two Lady A's, if you will, released a joint statement saying they were negotiating, um, had screenshots of a Zoom call where they were all smiling they were working towards some kind of agreement. Um, supposedly, the the two Lady A's were going to write a song together and record it. Everything looked hunky-dory. And then, all of a sudden, Lady A was releasing a statement saying, um, this is not going well. I'm no longer down with this. Um, they're trying to take advantage of me. And, um, and now, most recently, um, Lady Annabellum, Lady A of the country group, uh, filed a lawsuit against uh, Lady A, the Seattle blues singer. Um, and you could say that it sounds worse than it is because they weren't suing her for damages. They weren't suing her for so they could have sole rights of the name. Um, they were suing her to have a judge in Tennessee rule that they could share the name. And they claim they have sole rights to it anyway because they trademarked it uh, in... 2011. And even though Lady A has used the name longer, she never trademarked it. So that's kind of where things stand. And and now uh, Lady A has has released all these kind of increasingly, I don't know if hostile is the right word, but certainly uh, has her backup saying that um, this fits in with the history of white artists stealing from black artists, basically. Wow, Chris, thanks for summarizing that for us. I'm curious. That's the short uh, version. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It's like a made for, uh, it's like a documentary to come out in the future. Uh, I'm curious, you said, you referenced earlier that uh, that it kind of blew up in your comments section and people, it's really kind of turned into a culture thing. I'm curious if you could kind of summarize uh, kind of the response and if you've been surprised by the response to it. Um, I, I wouldn't say I, I've been surprised because... In the climate right now, when you have seemingly a face-off between a white artist and a black artist, A, and then B, one of them is David and one of them is Goliath, uh, 
and it's the white artist that's Goliath, and it's the black artist that's David, uh, public opinion is going to swing a certain way. And then when you have the Goliath white artist suing the David black artist, the optics of that are just not going to be great. And they can explain in a way that, hey, you know, we're not suing her for damages, and we actually want to share the name even though we own it, this and that. But the fact is they filed a lawsuit, and the headline is, you know, Mammoth Country Band files suit against obscure singer who uh, has nothing. And so, uh, right. and, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, people are not going to be focused on the legalities of that because, you know, if you – Talk to lawyers. They'll say that, you know, hey, you know, this lady, a the country band, did does have the trademark. You know, there's no dispute on that, and and the Seattle singer never contested it when it happened. And so, chances are, a judge is kind of going to say they can do what they want with it. But there are some people who who say, uh, you know, maybe she could uh, try to establish some rights just by the fact that she'd used it so much longer than they had, even though she never took out the trademark. But anyway, the, the, the legal stuff falls aside in terms of how does this look? And going forward, if, if Lady A does decide to keep that name, the, the country band that is, you know, and put it on all their merch and everything, is the, is the name forever tainted at this point? As, as I think it is, if, if they yeah. want to use it. Hmm. That other voice you're hearing is author Chris Woman, who wrote an article for Variety regarding all this Lady A controversy that article is on our facebook page we would love to know what you all think read the article chris is a phenomenal writer chris thank you so much for taking the time to join us today absolutely glad to appreciate it you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Find us all over the World Wide Web, not the least of which is Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can see all the articles we post. You can send us a message if you want. You can rate and review that page. You can share it with a friend. There's a lot of good dialogue going over there right now. We would encourage you to jump on in. You can also find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing does help us out a whole ton. And uh, I feel like I teased you all day yesterday with a new review, Brian, and then never told you. So I understood. That is a maybe, true statement. Maybe, maybe today's the day. Maybe I'll actually read it on <laughs> today. We'll see, uh, we'll see how the chips fall. But I, I, this interesting article out of uh, Harvard Business Review has this headline. The pandemic has exposed the fallacy of the ideal worker. What's going on here? Yeah, I found this article to be fascinating. Like you said, from the Harvard Business Review, it just begins this way. It says, with most of us working from home these days, Americans' workday has increased by 40%, roughly three hours a day, the largest increase in the world. Yes, I fact-checked that, the author wrote. I couldn't believe it either. The problem with all this busyness and productivity is that it comes at a huge price. Many employees are doing work, doing the work of three or more people. They're doing their own jobs, their child care workers' jobs, and their children's teachers' jobs. Yet many employees seem many employers seem oblivious. I hear reports of companies cheerfully assuring their employees and themselves that everyone's working at or close to 100%. So why don't managers see the problem here? The article goes on to say it's because there's still widespread reverence for what they call the ideal worker. We mm. commonly define the ideal worker as someone who starts working in early adulthood and continues full-time, full force for 40 straight years. 
The concept mm. reflects a breadwinner homemaker model that dates back to the Industrial Revolution and functioned fairly well through the 1960s until women began entering the formal workforce in greater numbers. But the ideal worker norm has long exacted a higher toll from women who not only did their day jobs, but also expected to deal with responsibilities for their families and their household. Right. Now it says, however, it's not just the women who suffer under the burden of the ideal worker norm. According to a recent survey, 14% of women are considering quitting their jobs due to work-family conflict during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hmm. But perhaps more surprising, so are 11% of the men. And so wow. it's talking about now how, how much of an issue this is. And let me just end the reading with this part. It says, to be sure... We're seeing the erosion of the ideal of an employee whose family responsibilities are kept tastefully out of sight. Before COVID, many parents quietly skulked off to attend the school play or coach the soccer game. Workers nursed their babies in cars and adult children slid away unobtrusively to take care, take elders to the doctor. Hmm. But now there's a lot less of a taboo because you can't hide hmm. it. And so this article, and it continues to go on, fasting article from the Harvard Business Review just said, one thing that COVID has done is it is kind of exposed uh, that the ideal worker doesn't really exist anymore, right? Where generally in the 1950s and 60s, dad would go off for the eight-hour day, 40 years of this, mom would stay home, raise the kids, and everything was kind of very black and white. Uh, and it's saying that that hasn't been true for a long time, but COVID has certainly made it not true at all. So this whole fallacy now of the ideal worker. Yeah, I think this is pretty fascinating here. He says, COVID has made visible the conflict between an older generation of ideal workers and younger men who see the good father as someone who is involved in his children's daily care. An in-house lawyer at a large company told me recently, it has really humanized our leaders because they are all sending messages about how they are coping with their kids, dogs, and 72-year-old mother trying to make it clear that we are all in this together. That's an interesting point because... If you remember, and there's a lot of memes, at least for a couple of weeks, about, great, now I'm getting a, hey, we're in this together email from every store I've ever given my email address to. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need to hear from you, Abercrombie and Fitch. I don't, I don't care that we're in this together. But the idea, though, that leaders that we do have relationships with have many of them taken this sort of we're in this together tack, which is sort of part and parcel with, let me share with you some of my own struggles, some of my own burden, which not that long ago would have been very taboo, right? The picture of the ideal yeah. boss or leader in some circles, I'm not saying in every circle, is sort of this stoic, never let them see a sweat, always has an answer kind of leader. And because we know that this this pandemic and this quarantine is affecting all of us to various degrees, by the way, like, I don't know if, it, if you've had this experience, Brian, but every time like a celebrity posts from their house about <laughs> quarantine and there's even just a little bit of their house in the background, I'm like, okay, <laughs> We're having very different quarantines, you and I. Yeah. Like, I can see both of your pools. Like, it's not not that it's not hard for them, too, but it's it's different. And so the article goes on to say, if there was ever a time to put to rest the old-fashioned notion of the ideal worker, it's now. Post-pandemic, let's re-sculpt workplace ideals so they reflect people's lives today, not a half a century ago. If you're focused on employee engagement, this is the path forward. If you aren't, you should be. A recent study found that disengaged employees cost employers 34% of their annual wow. salary. That links to a whole other study. But I'm wondering, are you seeing some of this? You lead an organization, Brian. You're the lead pastor of Four Corners Community Church. Do you find that you are more vulnerable, more transparent in, in these last three months than maybe you historically had been? Where do you, where do you land in all of this? 
Yeah, I certainly, we have a very small staff. And in some ways I feel like churches mirror this, but also are different, but tend to be different. But I do feel like we've been a lot more flexible with myself included of like, hey, I'm going to work from home this afternoon. Hey, we're going to do this. Hey, we got to run to this. Uh, It does feel like the expectation, like before COVID, we had a rhythm where I knew who was going to be in the office when, uh, and that has certainly gone away. Um, And, you know, but I I would think especially in an office now, I, you know, cards on the table, I've never worked in an office setting with a cubicle, eight hour day, like everyone sits there, what that type of deal. But I'd have to think it is a big switch right now. I would have to think that uh, the way we're all working from home or have been working from home and kids being home and needing to school kids, it's, man, it's got to be really hard to be a manager of a bigger organization right now. So yeah, to answer your question, we have felt it a little bit, but I would say just a fraction of what many business owners and business managers out there have probably felt it. Well, and it gets into some solutions too, that I think are, are pretty interesting. Again, like you said, our world as pastors is probably more different, I guess, than we realize. But yep. I, I like how I like how it's ended here. He says, as a smart person once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Let's not mm-hmm. waste this one. Instead, let's work together to ensure that a silver lining of this vast and frightening pandemic is a new definition of the worker as someone who's ambitious, focused, and committed, but who must also balance work obligations yeah. with caregiving responsibilities. When 30 million kids are out of school, employers can't just ignore that. And again, this was written sure. a little while ago. There's been some uh, some new developments with regards to schools in particular. But I, yeah, I'd love to know, what do, you, what do you think of that takeaway? I think the takeaway is fabulous. And think about as pastors, right? How many times have we gotten up, particularly in men's groups, but even uh, with our whole congregations and talked about, you know, don't be an idol of work and make sure you're not ignoring your kids. And so if that's a silver lining that comes out of it, where it's like, you know what, I'm going to be more flexible. Uh, I'm going to be there for my kids. And that's going to take a priority. Um, that's, I think that's an interesting thing that could come out of this. And I just think people need to realize, right, the old model of I work in the same place for 50 years and I just go, you know, nine to five, like it's just very different. It doesn't make one better than the other. Uh, but as they said, I think COVID is going to go down in the history books as something that is uh, probably changed forever a lot the way a lot of businesses work. And it's going to be really interesting, you know, to see the papers written, right? 10, 20, 30 years right. from now, looking back right. on this. Well, and another thing this article points out too, is that the average American spends 54 minutes a day commuting. That surprises wow. me. That might not surprise everybody. You know, it's, it feels like a lot of people I know live like 15 minutes or less from their job. Yeah. And I, I wonder even how that affects people that, you know, typically took the train, but they use that, that train time to catch up on a book or they use that drive time to listen to a podcast. Like I'm, I'll be curious to see the long-term effects of some of those habits as well as we see, you know, commuting and other things kind of yeah. in a lot of circles probably go by the wayside. Coming up next, this article out of Christianity Today, Jen Wilkin writes, want to love your neighbor? Start by fighting your own sin. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian from In the His House. A couple of things real quick. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post our articles. You can also send us a message if you have ideas for future shows. If you have feedback on previous shows, you just want to send us a smiley emoji. We would take any of that. You can also review and share that page. That helps us out a whole lot. Plus, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, if you are the podcasting type, which, by the way, 
is available everywhere. You can go to our page, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever platform you use, though, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for all of you who have ever done this, ever, ever, and especially with our show. So here's the headline out of Christianity Today by Jen Wilkins. She said, want to love your neighbors? Start by fighting your own sin. And then the subheading, which is really, I think, Brian's favorite part, says, when we make every (laughs) effort to be holy, it works toward the common good. There you have it. Why don't you uh, get us into this article a little bit, Brian? Yeah, she writes, what are some effective ways to love our neighbors? That's something that we've all been asking uh, over the past couple months. Uh, She says, most of us would say things like taking a meal to someone who's ill or helping repair a broken faucet. Thinking further we might point to less tangible actions like praying for people, apologizing quickly, or offering a word of encouragement. In each case, we think of a positive behavior directed towards someone. These are the, quote, one another actions, uh, conforming to the many New Testament instructions on how to treat those God places around us. Each one another is an expression of the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Outdo one another in showing honor, forgive one Mm -hmm. another, bear with one another, submit to one another in love. These expansive expressions of Old Testament principles prescribe how we can live in community and offer indispensable instructions uh, for maintaining the common good. But then she goes on to say, (laughs) but to truly love one another, we must direct our efforts at godliness, not just toward others, but inward. The call to love our neighbor is given in reference to how we love ourselves. It explicitly links the spiritual health of the individual to the health of the community. Yet we instinctively divide our sins into two categories, those that affect our neighbor and those that affect only us. The ancient God of individualism whispers that some sins are just between God and me. If there are consequences, they will impact only me. And this is simply not true. She says the consistent message of the Bible is this personal sin yields collateral suffering without fail. So that's that's a powerful statement. I'm wondering, uh, Justine, as you hear that, her linking uh, the two, personal holiness and love our neighbor, uh, do you think she's right? Do you think she's onto something? Yeah, I like what she, I mean, the sentence that you skipped here, I think is probably a really important one. Finding meaningful <laughs> ways to love one another is not simply a good idea or a nice suggestion. It's the hard work necessary for the well-being of the group. Like, I think a lot of times, when it comes to love your neighbor type initiatives, we often think it's for the more evangelistic or the more missional. It's like an optional, yeah. it's an optional, you know, side item at the buffet of the gospel. Like, well, and if you want to love one another, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. But I think the as yourself piece often gets overlooked, to be honest. And I, I don't know That's exactly right. why. It feels like in part because I think a lot of Christians maybe more in like fundamentalist camps feel like the as yourself has been hijacked by self-care, self-actualization type efforts. And so maybe as an attempt to sort of distance themselves from those ideas, it seems like for decades now we've experienced a lot of um, almost like self-flagellating types of services to the other at the expense and cost of myself. That's almost seen as like a heroic thing, right? To, to be, oh my gosh, I'm so tired or oh my, I am so beat. And a lot of people's, you know, jobs and output really does leave them exhausted and tired. I'm not knocking that yeah. at all. I think that's in a lot of ways really is honorable, but th- there's a, there's a big, there's a big piece that I think we miss when we assume either overtly or subtly that I can give what I don't have. Right. If, if the Holy spirit yeah. isn't 
like moving and redeeming and restoring, doing the work in my own heart, my own life, and I'm not partnering with him in that, well, then you could argue then a lot of what I'm doing outside of that then is they're like good deeds that I'm sure people appreciate, but it falls short, I think, of like the the 59 one another's that we're yeah. called to in the New Testament. And I like I like this example. It's interesting. She says, consider Achan, who believed he could take the spoils of war for himself and conceal them in his tent. That's from Joshua 7. God's punishment of not only Achan, but his entire household drives home the lesson that personal sin is sin against our neighbor. Communal well-being is harmed by individual rebellion. We are not so different from Achan. We tell ourselves a similar lie as we bow to the God of individualism. As long as my selfishness is concealed, as long as I don't act openly on any of my impulses to belittle, as long as no one knows I'm addicted to this behavior, this behavior or this substance or my own bitterness, no one is harmed but me. But personal sin yields collateral suffering. Why? Because what we do in the secret place is the most accurate representation of who we truly are. It reveals the motives of our hearts, the overflow of which invariably splashes onto our neighbor. Personal sin yields collateral suffering. But here's the good news. Personal holiness yields collateral blessing. And that's sort of where she takes the turn in this article. I didn't really ask you yet, though. Do you agree? I imagine you're going to agree. That's not really like a controversial question. But what's kind of your perspective so far on what she's written? Yeah, You know, I this is again, I say this every week, every day, almost like that's so why I like doing the show and reading articles like this that I may not have read before, because uh, it makes sense when you think about it, right? Like I can fake loving my neighbor uh, for about of time while, you know, uh, still harboring sin personally or whatever. And she's saying that's going to come out over time, right? It yeah. says uh, it's the most accurate, the secret places, what we do in the secret places, the most accurate representation of who we truly are. Yeah. It re- reveals the motives, the overflow. We talk a lot about the overflow of our heart. Uh, and, you know, there's this consistency that she's calling us to, right? Personal holiness is going to lead us to more uh, want to bless my neighbor and love my neighbor and be right. for the good of my neighbor. Right. Uh, they're going to, it's going to be the fruits of the spirit, right? Coming out in my life. Uh, and she goes on to say, right? Just as sin done in secret would be dragged into the light. So also good work of righteousness done in secret will be rewarded by the Lord. Uh, yeah, I think she's really onto something here that I hadn't really thought about. Because if you had asked me, without giving it much thought, I probably would categorize it as personal sins between me, you know, that God knows they're kind of, you know, only God knows, or how I'm, how am I doing loving my neighbor and corporately? And she's saying, no, those are, those are very much linked together. And when we pull them apart, uh, it doesn't really work very well. And so I guess I would, you know, it does leave me going, well, then what? Like, I guess the, the thought here by her is, you know, there, we do need to spend some time looking inward uh, and kind of dealing with what's actually going on in our own souls, which feels pretty uh, biblical to me. Well, I think what she's saying, too, is that we need both. Like, I think of the analogy Absolutely. of a tree, right? If, if a tree is all yep. roots, it can brag about how rooted it is. But a tree's purpose isn't just to just to have roots, right? So on the other side, though, you can also have a tree that's all branches, all reach. Maybe in this analogy, it's all like giving back. But if there's no rootedness, though, eventually that that whole thing is going to topple over. She said, when love, joy, peace and patience are our daily meditation, when kindness, goodness and faithfulness are our mindset, when gentleness and self-control are our mainstay, these virtues overflow our hearts and become a source of blessing to our neighbors. We cannot help but interact with one another in life-giving ways when these are the content of our character. Uncommon personal holiness, hard-sought, 
serves the common good. And I think, I think it is a bull fan because there is a danger of being too internally focused, right? Where it's only about yourself and you only pursue your own holiness and growth at all costs. And that can often come at the expense of giving back and loving your neighbor and being generous. But I, I think part of what she's saying here is actually a, a really important invitation that I think would be good for all of us to consider. That's on our Facebook page, by the way. We'd love to know what you think. What would you add? What would you take away? What was uh, what was sort of your bottom line takeaway from that article? You can find that at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next from Michael Frost, this headline has, well, at least Brian and I interested. Will the 10-minute homily be the new normal? That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with, I was going to say Right Reverend again, but I feel like I've done that every segment so far. The illustrious, the Thank prodigious, you. the prodigious sure. Brian Fromm here in digital flesh. <laughs> digital flesh. Digital flesh. I played, I played bass I in played digital, bass flesh. digital flesh. Of course. Of course. <laughs> That's, that should be the new subtitle of the whole show. I played bass in The Common Good. A uh, <laughs> couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. 1160hope.com slash the common good Instagram and Twitter at common good talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Now we've read, we've referenced Michael Frost a couple of times. Yes. I think, I think he's just a brilliant thinker and communicator and writer. He's actually good at all three of those. Now that I think about it, that's pretty rare. A lot of times yeah. haven't you, haven't you found that to be true? Sometimes your favorite writers are not great speakers and then vice versa. Like the guy 100%. that you've, you've yes. loved listening to preach, like writes his first book and you're like, Hmm, maybe stick to preaching. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. I've totally found that. And then sometimes we'll have people on, we're not going to name anybody who like, we'll listen to all the time. And then you're like, Oh, okay. You, 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 uh, what you wrote was not the same. It's, it's very interesting. And uh, Michael Frost, like you said, uh, he tends to cross all the bridges and he likes to stir the pot a little bit. He sure does, which makes for good radio, I think. So his headline is, will the 10 minute homily be the new normal? Now, we don't tend to often in Protestant circles use the word homily, but that is a version of the sermon for anyone who is That's not right. familiar. Here's how he begins. He says, there's been much discussion about the ways the pandemic lockdown has affected our approach to doing and being the church. We've been forced to move our programs online and close any non-essential ministries that can't be conducted remotely. Like other areas of our lives, we've engaged with members of our congregation via Zoom or FaceTime or some other platform. We pivoted quickly and found ways to provide pastoral care, coaching, team leadership, and Bible teaching all online or by phone. Sure, we've grown heartily sick of looking at faces in the boxes on our computer screens, but we did it because we had to. And yet, while we've longed for things to get back to normal, we also keep telling each other that there will be a new normal, that in some ways things will be very different in a post-COVID-19 world. I've been in a number of conversations recently about what things will spring back to normal and what will be irreversibly changed by our experience of quarantine. One of the common responses I'm hearing is that a lot of church people have enjoyed just having a 10 to 15 minute sermon on Sundays. Their pastors have recognized that it's challenging to listen to a typical sermon of 20 to 40 minutes online, and they've shortened their presentations accordingly. Now, some of their parishioners are saying they like it. Of course, the 10 minute homily is standard fare for Catholic congregations. In fact, one thing Protestants notice when they attend Catholic services is the brevity of the teaching. There are historical and ecclesial reasons for this. The Catholic homily is only meant to be an application of the readings for the day. The readings for each day are thematically connected 
and the church provides a variety of different resources that assist Catholics to delve into those readings. There are also more in-depth study materials available to Catholics in a variety of different formats for in-depth delving into Scripture. But the reasons aren't simply pedagogical. Where he's everything in a Protestant service built up to the sermon, in a Catholic church, everything builds up to the Eucharist. The Mass isn't ever going to be a place for lengthy exposition of Scripture. I'll stop there. And I, even before I read this earlier, I assumed I assumed this is where he was going. He's going to talk about really what does the service build toward. And you and I, you know, although the churches are different in a lot of ways, we're still probably from the same lineage. Like they're kind of cut from similar cloths, if not the same cloth. I'm wondering, have you found this to be true? Have you shortened your sermons? Have you found people asking for shorter sermons? Have you yourself wanted to preach shorter sermons? Where, where do you kind of land in all this? So all interesting. As you were reading the article here, I was like, man, how am I been? Uh, Nobody has asked for shorter sermons, but I, you know, I think that's just to be kind, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, I have definitely been shorter over the, uh, really? over the uh, pandemic. Yeah. I would say if I used to be, I was generally on a Sunday morning, kind of a 25 to 28, sometimes 30 minute guy. Uh, and I, I've been like anywhere from like 18, I would say to 2022 since oh, really? the pandemic. Okay. And I think for two reasons, one is, uh, exactly what he said uh you're just it's harder to keep people's attention right you're you're on a screen it's it's just different and then really truthfully and i'm wondering if you've had this at all when you've preached uh now i'm watching myself preach right we're recording before and then i'm sitting down and watching it with my family on a sunday morning and honestly, man, there have been times I've been going, oh, be done already. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm looking at myself. I know what I'm saying. And I've actually had some moments through this going, I could have said that like in a more succinct way. Like that didn't to kind of drag out like that. And so it's been a very interesting thing to record and then watch it in real time with the rest of our church, including my family, hmm. Uh you know, in our living room. And so, yeah, I certainly have been a little bit shorter. I don't think I would ever go the route of the 10 minute sermon that feels, uh, and I get why he's bringing that up again, the purpose of the sermon, like in the Protestant church versus the Catholic church. But uh, on a very practical level, I certainly have been shorter. And those are the reasons have you uh, either yourself or your whole team, have you guys been shorter or has it been pretty standard fare? It's been pretty standard, but we've been more intentional about providing other elements to kind of break up the sermon. So making sure there's like some kind of video component or some kind of interactive moment or something, something more. um, I mean, and that's those are the types of things we were always thinking through, but certainly more intently. Now, I like what he says, though, here a little bit later, he says modern day congregations have access to a myriad of sources of information about doctrine, biblical interpretation and plenty of encouragement for their faith from websites, podcasts, books, and short courses. Now, you know, people can hop between 10 churches in an afternoon. As Doug Padgett says in Preaching Reimagined, this should compel us to reconsider our ideas about preaching. Here's what he writes. In truth, the idea that a person needs to be specifically educated to understand the things of God is little more than Western conceit. There was a time when churches believed that a pastor should be the sole speaker for God because he was among the few who could read as though the only important knowledge of God is the kind that comes from reading. Perhaps COVID-19 will be the unwanted and unpleasant catalyst that will force Protestant churches to reshape our methods of teaching as well as our liturgies to align more with what we know about the ways that people like to learn. And I will say not necessarily during COVID, but, you know, moving from my previous church to community, 
I was yeah. historically preaching probably 40, 45 minutes and community wow. has a pretty tight 25. And I thought, oof, that's going to be tough until I actually started doing it. I began looking at my old sermons through a completely different lens. Like you were just saying, like, oh, yeah, I definitely could have said those old sermons much more succinctly than I than I chose to. So, yeah, I'm certainly open to some of the stuff that I I think Frosty is proposing here. I love at the end near the end. He says, I know preachers themselves often prefer to preach longer. He says they'll point out that Matt Chandler speaks for an hour and everybody loves it. But not everybody can do what Matt Chandler does. Hundred percent. <laughs> it's so true. It's like people, you know, they'll always pick out like the most acclaimed preachers and be like, "Well, he speaks for a long time." Be like, "Yeah, for a reason." You know, it's yeah. uh, it's a little different. But I think his thing is right, and I think it gets to the bigger question for churches and just culturally in general. Like, what are the changes that are going to last? Like our churches have been changed by this, right? We're at like 18, 19 weeks now. Who knows how long things are going to continue in this way? And who knows what, quote unquote, the new normal is going to be? So I think all things are on the table uh, with these types of things, like sermon length and stuff. And I think they are really worthy conversations to be having. Yeah. And the other thing that he mentions too a couple of times throughout the article is the presence of kids, that if you're watching this with little kids or with older kids even, a shorter message uh, certainly is easier for them to stay engaged with. Mine are a little young for that. So we have like a whole separate kids church thing that they will watch often at the same time, which makes the whole house just sound like it's a carnival. But uh, we would be curious to know what you all think. And we we promise our feelings won't be hurt. Brian and I are both preachers. We're both pastors. (laughs) But what do you think? Should sermons be longer? Should they be shorter? Should they stay the same? Should they be similar but thought about differently this article is up on our facebook page and uh, we would love to know what you all think and the first hour the first half is in the books but when we come back though why the early church wasn't interested in political power that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope you're Hey everyone, it's Ian Simkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, why the early church wasn't interested in political power. Plus, we're going to talk about Andy Stanley's church, and we're going to end with some good news. This is The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to part two of The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, how are you today? I haven't asked you maybe more than once today. I'm good. Uh, it's an enjoyable day so far, and uh, the weather is beautiful. Uh, I'm I'm in a cheery mood today. Uh, that sounded like I'm 80 years old, but I'm in a good mood. How about yourself? How's your day going? <laughs> which, which that was the run today. Which part <laughs> sounded like you were 80 in your mind? 
uh, the phrase cheery mood. <laughs> no, I, don't, I think that's safe. I think you're okay. okay good. I'm, How about yourself? I mean, what do I know, though? I'm wearing a cardigan in a basement, so I'm about as grandpa easy as it gets. Uh, real quick, our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. There's all sorts of things you can do there. Send us a message, interact with some of the articles. We'll be sharing some of those comments later in the show. Plus, you can find us wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps a whole lot. And uh, Brian, this was actually from, it looks like July 7th from Relevant Magazine, Mm -hmm. why the early church wasn't interested in political power. Many American Christians today are worried about having no political influence. Early Christians took that as a given. Why don't you get us into this a little bit? Yeah, a student recently, the article begins this way, a student recently asked me, what can we do to prevent American society from becoming totally post-Christian? In the few minutes before I answered, I thought about the different religious commitments of Gen Z and the entrenched secularism that will make it difficult in the decades ahead for Christians to sit in the halls of power. Very little, I replied. The trajectory is already set. The fear in the student's eyes was palpable. It has become normal for Christians, especially evangelicals, to convert their fear about a post-Christian future into right-wing fervor. After the recent DACA ruling, President Trump characteristically attempted to bait Christian panic by tweeting, If the radical left Democrats assume power, your right to life, secure borders, and religious uh, liberty are over and gone. There's a growing Christian resistance to Trump and Trumpites who are blamed for damaging our witness by acting out of fear and hate. But the two sides are closer than they think. Even many in the hashtag never Trump camp imply that so long as their candidate is a decent person, Christians are free to feel the anxiety of getting that person into the White House. Few Christians doubt that Christianity flourishes best when it occupies the halls of power. The problem is that the proportion of Americans identifying as Christian will likely decrease by at least 10% over the next few decades. Uh, And so skipping down, it says, what we need is a view of power that does not depend on ruling and reigning. The best place to find inspiration, this article says, for rethinking power is the era of the church that never really had traditional power the earliest Christians. Now the Christians of 30 to 200 AD weren't inherently better than us, but their situation was surprisingly similar. They struggled for credibility and navigated pluralism. Crucially, something that is new for American Christians, fading influence, was just taken as a given by them. Hmm. They were outnumbered and largely ignored, yet their churches spread across the Roman world. The early church's view of power begins with the Apostle Paul's tagline, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul knew the Christian message wouldn't and shouldn't make him famous, but that didn't mean it lacked persuasion. Growing up in a world that made rigid distinctions based on class and gender, some ancients were known to pray, thank you, God, I'm not born a woman. The notion that the Messiah hung on a cross identifying with outcasts was a revelation. When Paul was criticized for his poor appearance, he defiantly said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. Uh, and so he's going to go on more, but he's he's trying to say here, this article is trying to say, and it's going to get into it later again, that, uh, that we have this bent, uh, many of us in the evangelical world of needing to have political power, needing to have political influence. And so I'm wondering you know, what you think about him going, hey, the early church that we always point to uh, had zero political influence uh, and yet thrived. And in fact, a lot of times when the church has had political influence is when it has struggled. I think that's something that a lot of us don't really grasp. 
Yeah, we have a couple of comments on the Facebook page that I wanted to read first. So again, the yeah. headline reads, Why the Early Church Wasn't Interested in Political Power. Our good friend David Cook, he said, I agree they were not, but that system was far different than a republic where we choose our leaders and are asked and expected to participate. Not an exact match between then and now, but entanglement in politics is dangerous for the church. So then my friend Ryan weighs in, and he says, excellently said, also, this is the premise of the article is woefully ignorant of history. The church has been entangled in politics since Constantine in the 300s. Before then, for the first century or two, it was seen as a branch of Judaism. And the Jewish people have been a state since King Saul, though God did entreat them against this. Considering the source, I imagine this is a, a less than veiled condemnation on the religious right and influence from a prominent piece on the topic by NPR last year. So... Uh -huh. I would love, yeah, you sort of, uh, you've smart friends. <laughs> you, <laughs> that, that is definitely true. They are all smarter than me, but based on that, you sort of said that you agree with the relevant article. Now, after hearing a couple of those comments from our Facebook page, what do you think of their comments? Oh, I think, uh, they're fair. I think they're, the comments are fair, but I do think this relevant article still has a point and relevant as we know, we've read enough articles about them, uh, that they certainly have a certain leaning. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it says, you know, I, I would this line here, here, listen to this. He says this humble, other oriented life is not a strategy for winning elections. It's the road to building Christian credibility. In fact, this is exactly how the first Christians gained political influence. Historians often argue that Christians became, quote, cool because Constantine converted or more subtly that Christians lobbied the elite. And this led to Constantine's conversion. In either case, we're, we're painting the early Christians in our own image. Uh, they were less interested in influencing the influencers and more concerned with simply being the church. And so I do think, uh, regardless, uh, they do make some good points, but I do think the overall premise is pretty accurate here, that as the church and as evangelicals take on humility and other orientedness and kind of give away power and are, are trying to put others ahead of themselves, that's being the church, but it's also not a good way to rise into power and to win elections sure. and to be... Uh, the movers and shakers within the political system. And so I do think uh, while their comments, I think, aren't inaccurate, I do think this article uh, makes a good point about kind of us needing to pick a lane here. All right. Well, let me uh, let me read some of the father's end then, because I think it's actually pretty well written, even if I don't agree with all of it. It says, of course, the early Christians were far from perfect and their main faults included embellished martyrdom accounts. But despite their failures, they were willing to support causes that outsiders were already championing. Their lack of inhibitions about political power freed them to work for the common good. That's the second time that's shown up in an article today, by the way. Yes. For example, Stoic philosophers had long objected to the gladiatorial games in, as inhumane. And after Christians joined them, the games were banned. All of this enables us to see why MLK Jr. and his Letters from Birmingham Jail says this, there was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Like MLK's civil rights movement, the Christianity of the future doesn't need to rule to have influence. It can fight for change at the grassroots level, working from the bottom up. If there comes a day when the American church can't operate openly, a future that so many now fear, we should remember that Christianity does some of its best work from the margins. I think that mm -hmm. is absolutely true. I think both 
uh, Ryan and David make some interesting points that it isn't apples and oranges. I would agree. I think the same thing applies when we talk about church strategy, where there's much I think that we can learn from the book of Acts, but there's also a whole lot about the context of the book of Acts that is just not true for us now. This, again, really, I think, drills down to hermeneutics, good doctrine, good exegesis, good theology, because some stuff in Scripture is descriptive, some is prescriptive, some of it is maybe not for us to actually compare and contrast at all. But at the very least, though, especially as someone who has seen a lot of Christians vying for power at all costs, I think this is a very interesting take, and again, I don't know that you and I ever agree entirely with almost any article we talk about, which is kind of the point of the show, but it is up on our Facebook page. We would love for you to continue the conversation there. Weigh in, jump in. What do you like? What do you disagree with? Where do you kind of stand and all that? And maybe if you want, what's a, what's a good way forward coming up next? Here's a, uh, just a couple of tweets I want to talk about. Uh, and they have to do with how we proclaim the gospel. What does the gospel mean? both individually, but also systemically. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is not a bad day right now. I hear it's about to get a super hot. I'll probably right. still try to run. I'll try. It's. I'm already regretting that decision even before I did it, but uh, it's probably going to try. <laughs> We're going to try anyway. And what do you guys do? We'd love to hear from you. What do you do when it's 100 degrees out? Maybe another day I'll tell you about when I uh, spent the summer in India. My first day there was like 120 degrees. Stop. uh, Really? I thought, what have I done? Yeah. Yeah. That was a pretty terrifying first day. Real quick, though, a couple of things that a lot of you probably already know. You can go to the Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. And there's a few things you can do there. Once you're there, you can like that page. You can review that page. You can share that page. You can also interact with all the articles we're sharing. Shoot us a message if you have ideas for future shows or feedback on past shows. All of that is not only really helpful, but does actually like shape the content and direction for the show. You can also find us at Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. 1160hope.com slash the common good is another place to go. And finally... We have a podcast. You can get them wherever it is you get podcasts. But we do ask, if you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. All of that does really, truly, somehow help us out. So we're grateful <laughs> for that. And if you want to hit that share button, that's plenty. That's plenty now. But uh, before we dive into this series of tweets, Brian Fromm has some other words he'd like to say to you. Yeah, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point Ministries are giving away hope all month long on AM 1160. So here's what we're doing. For a limited time, visit 1160hope.com slash contest to receive your free He Is bookmark, a wonderful reminder of the many names of Christ. So by just going to 1160hope.com slash contest, you get that for free. But you're also going to automatically be registered to win a brand new Jeremiah study Bible and a pair of Apple AirPods. So here's again, 1160hope.com slash contest, register, and you may win a Bible and some Apple AirPods, thanks to David Jeremiah. Right on. Okay, so... Hey, someday, before we start this, I really want a Simpkins Bible. Like, you get to the point where they're, like, naming the Bible. Like, that is... How do you get to that point? (laughs) I I don't want to get to that point. Just to go on record, that's... It's clearly an aspiration of Brian Fromm's. That is nope, not- I would buy that Bible. <laughs> uh, 
not interested. Nobody needs nobody needs a Simpkins Bible whatsoever. There's all uh, these puns and all this stuff. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could just tell jokes while you read the Bible if that's what you want. <laughs> I could make that service available for sure. I would feel uh, much better about wonderful. that. All right. So this is from Raymond Chang. It's really just two tweets. I'm going to read both of them if that's okay. And then uh, I'm going to let you weigh in. He says, in the white evangelical frame, proclaiming Christ into individual issues is often labeled, quote, preaching the gospel. But proclaiming Christ into systemic issues is labeled, quote, preaching a social gospel. The inbreaking of God's kingdom applies to both the individual and the whole world. He goes on. The false dichotomy between a gospel that either had implications to the individual or the world surrounding was at the heart of the fundamentalist modernist divide. And what you will see today is an utter failure of the evangelical church to break out of it without any commentary, Brian, what do you think? Oh, I think, I think he's right. I never, I never really thought of it uh, in terms of uh, along uh, ethnic and racial lines, Uh, but the whole preach the gospel uh, that's just, you know, being made me individually being made right with Christ, having my sins forgiven uh, so that I can go to heaven is often, uh, you know, what a lot of us grew up on. But then when we talk about, um, you know, proclaiming Christ into into societal and systemic issues, this whole preaching a social gospel and that phrase usually comes with a lot of baggage and uh, it always has. And so I think uh, Raymond Cheng here, as he often does, is making a fabulous point. And I would point out, we've interviewed over the last month or month and a half, how many pastors, especially from uh, from the city of Chicago, most, if not all of them, African-American pastors. And uh, I've appreciated the, in almost every one of those interviews, you have asked this question and about just preach the gospel. And I thought, I feel like what so many of those guys have said has been so enlightening uh, hopefully for our listeners, but at least for me, as they've all said, no, this is preaching the gospel, like dealing with things like racism, like the gospel speaks to this. Right, uh, and right. it, we can't make this what Raymond Chang calls here the false dichotomy. So I do. I think he's right. I see a lot of this uh, in, um, you know, a lot of the things that I've read growing up or a lot of the ways that I've thought of things. Uh, so, no, I think this is really helpful. I know you believe this strongly, but when you read this tweet, uh, just go go uh, uh unpack why you feel this so strongly well i think i mean he mentions that it not only is at the center of the divide but i think to focus on one without the other can lead i think to some pretty obvious places if we only focus on me myself and i kind of this individualist sin the inevitable outcome almost always is going to be some some sort of like highly individualized me and buddy jesus or not even me and buddy Jesus. That's not totally fair. But I think a lot of people maybe have graduated into a Christianity where their highest aim is just like solely my relationship with God, which on the surface has all sorts of good things. Those those people tend to be really, really committed to scripture reading, to their quiet time, to mm-hmm. different formative practices. They tend to be pretty diligent with regards to tithing and attending a worship service. You know what I mean? Like the, the individual yep. focus can have all sorts of good outpouring. And I think just like the person that only is focusing on the systemic thing, this is, this is your activist. This is the person that is speaking truth to power. This is the, the person who's standing up for the little guy. And they're, they're looking at the more complex realities that make our world, what they are, especially the things that are maybe keeping people 
exploited or marginalized. We, we need that too. But when you only have one or the other, not, not only does it create an inevitable divide and I think, you know, necessitates a conflict of some kind of the other, right? Because typically when someone says, oh, they're just preaching a social gospel, that's not an encouragement. They're not, people typically aren't saying that, you know, with accolades. It, they're usually like, oh, that's that kind of church. And I think yep. if you read the gospels plainly at the very least, we see that it's it's not just about me getting to heaven when I die, and it's not yeah. just about me speaking truth to power. It's it's a both and, and we can't we can't speak truth to power the ways that we are called to if there isn't this individual indwelling. But we also, mm. I think, squander this individual indwelling if it doesn't actually pour out into how we love our neighbor and how we look at the systems and structures of the world that keep people oppressed or marginalized or exploited. It has to be, it's almost like a circle. One informs the other. And I think it's important that they both go together, to be honest. Yeah. And so I think uh, we get when we've gone too far on the individual side. I'm curious, you've given this a lot of thought. When will we know if we've gone too far the other way? If we've gone, like you said, it's all about social gospel or whatever else. What's not only what's the danger of going too far, but when would we even know if we've gone too far excuse me, on that side of the spectrum. Yeah, I don't know that there's one size fits all to this. This is why for me, I'm okay. always going back to the significance of community, of accountable community, not mm-hmm. just kumbaya community, uh, balanced community, people, conversations with people with whom that you disagree with, both politically and theologically and socially. Th- those are helpful safeguards. And I think the bedrock of some kind of relational equity is really necessary because otherwise we're just as likely to get into arguments as we would with anybody else. But if like, there's care and longevity there. Like this person's calling me out and I know they're doing it because they love me. But I think there's probably, I mean, we're out of time in this segment, but there's, there's a number of things that I would probably say could be like lights on our dashboard. Like if we find ourselves unconcerned with matters of mm-hmm. systems and structures of someone else's pain or exploitation, that's a good, there's a good sign that may, maybe I'm not actually being formed. Maybe the, the outpouring of the spirit in my life isn't actually being lived out to its fullest potential. But if you, if you find yourself like, I'm not all that interested in my own quiet time and devotion and prayer life. I just want to go out there and get them. I want to go, I want to go make a change. I want to go make a difference. That's a really good impulse. But then again, though, I think like we were talking earlier with the Jen Wilkin article, like loving our neighbor as ourself, part of how we love ourself, I think is allowing God to love us and redeem Mm -hmm. us, restore us. And if we're not, taking time for those types of things. I think it's really easy for us to kind of kind of miss the mark. So that's that's my take. I think we're all out of time. But coming up next, yeah. though, we got a couple of articles we're going to unpack about some things that are happening around the world, some in church world, some in higher education world, some in COVID world. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi again. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Welcome back. Glad you're here. Ryan Fromm is also here. Whew. Both of us are here, and uh, it's better It's better when we're both here, I think. I listen really to some is. of the shows we did by ourselves, and we're like, hmm. I think we, uh, you're, the, you're the yin to my yang, Brian. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. We're better together. That's, that's not even entirely true, but that's, yeah, I think that there's some truth to that, though, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. No, we are certainly better together. We're a good team, my friend. Totally agree. All right. Uh, a couple of things briefly. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good or wherever it is you get podcast. You know, 
liking, subscribing, reviewing, rating, all that stuff helps out a whole ton, but you already know that. Let me get into a couple of articles. We got three here, and I think, um, I don't know necessarily, Brian, like what you find to be, like how do you how do you f- decide what you consume when it comes to news and media? Like is there a, a strategy with how you consume your news media or is it sort of like whatever shows up on Facebook and Twitter? I'll, I'll stop for what kind of like catches my attention. A little bit of both. So I do tend to start yeah. my day every day with the Today Show. Uh, when I get up, I've kind of, you know, enjoy that. And I'll have CNN on, <clears throat> excuse me, while we're doing the show. But then a lot of it, quite frankly, is a lot of what comes across Twitter or um, Facebook, like you said. So I'd say it's a little bit of both. How about yourself? Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, our, our think tank helps a lot. I feel like that's a, that's been kind of a curated. These are people that I know hold a myriad of different opinions. So it's been really fun to just sort of like lob to them on the Saturday. Like, hey, we're thinking through stories for the next week. What do you guys have? What's sort of, you know, showing up in your news feeds? And it's always like pretty diverse, pretty rich. So, I, yeah, that's that's certainly one area that's been helpful for me. I'm trying to get better with lists on Twitter and things like that, but I'm just I'm just not good at it. But yeah. here's the one I want, I want to start with. Uh, it says Atlanta Megachurch suspends in-person worship services for the rest of the year. This is, of course, Andy Stanley's North Point. And uh, I'd love to know, Brian, when you saw this, what did you think of that news? Oh, I found the very interesting. So Stanley's North Point has 40,000 attendees in several locations around across Metro Atlanta. And uh, on Monday, he announced they will suspend all in-person worship services for the rest of the year because of the coronavirus pandemic. What was interesting was back in May, they announced they were possibly going to do an August 9th reopening because things were trending in the right direction. Right. Uh, but he said very clearly this, things in Atlanta, in Georgia, Florida, everything down there has really changed. That's not it, That area is not going really well right now. And so he said, consequ- things have changed. He said, consequently, uh, this is a, such a powerful line. We cannot guarantee your safety. And that is a big part of this decision. Uh, mm. If we open and a volunteer or a child or a student or adult who attends any of our environments test positive, we're responsible for ever, all the contact tracing. But that would be pretty much impossible. That's just one of the several unforeseen factors. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's an impressive decision. It is a wise decision down there. And like you see it in California, right? They're rolling everything back to all virtual stuff. I hope uh, Illinois doesn't end up in the same spot as Atlanta and California as a, as a state health wise. But with what's going on in Atlanta, I think for Stanley to do this now to say through the end of the year, I think really uh, takes the pressure also off of a lot of other smaller churches there who are probably like, what do we do? What do we do? I think he's trailblazing a little bit in a helpful way here. So we got some comments on the Facebook page. Danielle says, I have a feeling this may be where we all are headed. Uh, Joe Mm -hmm. says that's possibly the safest thing they could have done. Mel said our churches in California just all went back to virtual per governor mandate. Heather said, we haven't gone back either. Michael said, I think that's the right thing to do. And Dana said, go Andy Stanley. So it looks like 100% positive comments. I'd be really curious to know people who read that headline or hear that headline are thinking, no, that's so dumb. That's so unwise. I really mean that. I would love to know what some of the opposing opinions might be, uh, particularly as it pertains to churches being open or not open, because I think that's a it's an important topic that we're not done talking about for sure. Why, right. why don't you uh, right. Why don't you get us into this next one, Brian? Yeah, interestingly, this was just I think this morning. Uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield he said if everyone wore a mask for the next six weeks, we could drive the pandemic quote into 
the ground. Uh, he said, uh, he said during a press conference Monday afternoon, Dr. Robert Redfield continued with the theme of pleading with Americans to put on a mask to stymie the spread of COVID-19. He said that if everyone complied, then over the next six weeks, we could drive this into the ground. The mm. revo- re- reward for such a proposition certainly seems tantalizing for the average citizen, though it's likely to fall on millions of deaf ears, rendering the timeline into an unattainable pipe dream. Maybe it's best, you know, for your sanity if you just prep yourself for indefinite lockdown. So that's this article out of complex.com. Uh, you know, we've we've talked a lot. I had nauseam here over the last couple of weeks about our thoughts about masks, but also about the politicalization of them. And honestly, man, it feels more uh, more divided and political. At least that's what I'm seeing on my timelines and other things than it even did uh, when we started talking about masks three weeks ago. And so uh, in some ways you get excited when you read this, man, if we all just wore masks, maybe he's right. And I get the CDC has been wrong about things. But what if he was right and that would help drive this down? But then I do sadly think they're probably right in here that this might be an unattainable pipe dream uh, because I think there's a lot of people out there uh, that aren't going to listen to this at all. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, well, hopefully we'll get him on the show later in the week. My buddy Gerald wrote, I think, one of the most balanced, compelling arguments for wearing a mask. And it's always interesting when it's someone you know because you can kind of trace who's liking or commenting or sharing and like, Oh, there's people that are both right and left politically and theologically who are like, right on, man. That's that to me is a, uh, an indication of not only some, some good writing, but maybe like some, some Holy spirit writing, you know, or like yeah. people that would otherwise be at each other's throats are like, good point, man. I like that. I'm sharing it. So yeah, just that's a little tease. Hopefully we can get him on the show a little bit later in the week. This third article from CNN Politics, Trump administration drops restrictions on online only instruction for foreign students. We did this mm, last week. We is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Early last week, I think. It says the Trump administration has rescinded its policy that would bar international students who only take online courses from staying in the U.S., a federal judge announced Tuesday in Boston. The decision comes a little over a week after Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced that students at schools offering only online courses due to the coronavirus pandemic would need to either leave the U.S. or transfer schools. One person familiar with the matter told CNN the White House has felt the blowback to the proposal and that some inside the West Wing believe it was poorly conceived and executed. According to another source, the White House is now focused on having the rule apply only to new students rather than students already in the U.S., the White House declined to comment on an ongoing policy process. Real briefly, before we get to the meat of this, um, are they allowed to just simply say one person familiar with the matter? And according to another source, like that, <laughs> no, <it> depends <laughs> on the source. It's <laughs> not cited at all, actually. I was reading that kind of taken aback. But, you know, again, with a grain of salt, what do you, what do you think of this move? I, you know, if you remember our conversation last week that we said, or two weeks ago that we both had some problems with this, that it felt uh, unnecessary mean, uh, unnecessarily cruel, I believe was the quote that was used by someone in the article. And so I'm happy. I'm happy anytime. Also, I see whether it be the right or the left go, you know what, we're going to rethink that and we're going to change it. And you could, you know, you could think all the cynical reasons, the, the good part is how it ended. And so, you know, I'm sure the fight's not over for the people in this, but uh, to see them before they were getting sued and it went to court to kind of do a 180 on this, I think it's proper. I think it's right for students who have been in the States doing their classwork just because their schools go virtual doesn't mean they should either have to be uh, back in their home country or have to transfer school. So I'm good with this. I'm I'm good with this. 
So all three of those are posted on our Facebook page. As always, we would welcome your thoughts. If there's another angle or perspective, by the way, and this has been happening a lot lately, offer that in the comment section. If there's another perspective or tack that you'd like for us to kind of include within this larger conversation, we would love to hear from you. And you can find all of that over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And coming up next to land the plane, finally, some good news. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Okay, we are almost there, friends. It's the home stretch, the final segment of the day today on the Common Good. It's a little segment we like to call some good news. We know that the uh, world can feel a little overwhelming. There's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of toxicity in our Facebook stream and on Twitter, and just in general on our little laptop screen. So we like to every once in a while dedicate an entire segment to just talk about good news. And again, these aren't stories that uh, I personally have found or reported on. You can find them all at goodnewsnetwork.org. If you've not bookmarked them yet, I highly recommend that you do because couldn't we all just use a little more good news? All these, by the way, are also posted to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can interact with them there or you can find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. And because it's the end of the show, the best way to end a show, I always say, is to subscribe, rate, and review. Isn't that the old adage? Isn't that how the saying yeah. goes, Brian? Oh, yeah. It goes subscribe back decades for sure. 100%. 100%. Tale as old as time. All right, Brian, <laughs> why don't you kick us off with this first good news story? Yep. Inspired by Captain Tom, five-year-old walks on new prosthetic limbs, raising $1 million for hospital that saved him. Holy cow. Yep. A little boy in Britain has raised over $1 million for the National Health Health Service Hospital to thank them for saving his life when he was a baby. For the fundraiser, five-year-old Tony Hudgel propelled himself around a local park on his prosthetic legs using crutches. Originally meant to drum up a modest $550, thousands of generous strangers heard about his inspiring laps and donated money for the London Evelina Hospital. Hobbling a total of six miles until the end of June, Donations poured in, equaling about $100,000 for every kilometer, and every kilometer became easier for the boy whose artificial limbs were brand new. At first, it took Tony about an hour just to walk a fifth of a mile, but with hard work and determination, soon he was covering the same distance in only 12 minutes. Inspiration for his his fundraiser came after Tony saw Captain Tom Moore, the 100-year-old World War II veteran who recently became famous for raising 
$40 million for British hospitals fighting COVID-19. Tony thought that if the elderly man could do 100 laps in his backyard with his walker, surely he could do a walk of his own with his crutches. What a great way to start. There's almost too many good things in that one story. Like the the headline alone has like four different elements of good news. Either way, I'm not typically like this, but like when I first read it, I think I audibly went, wow. Like I just like caught me off guard. (laughs) Uh, All right. This next one out of goodnewsnetwork.org, the search engine that plants trees with every search has just planted its 100 millionth tree. Before I get into it, Brian, did you know there's a search engine that plants trees? No, no. And I'm even confused. And the picture is amazing. The picture is pretty incredible. I am not going to lie. It says for 11 years, the search engine Ecosia, Ecosia has used yeah. most of the revenue from advertising on its website and app toward planting trees. And this month they planted their 100 millionth tree. That's a tough number for me to wrap my brain around. The German nonprofit, which became the first B corporation in that country because it was established for social good, has earned its founder, Christian Kroll, widespread praise. And one reason is that they claim to plant more native species than any other mass tree planting effort. The phenomenon of mass tree planting began in the early 2000s when scientists began hypothesizing that the increase in CO2 emissions could be countered by replenishing the world's forest. Since then, projects like Africa's Great Green Wall and China's Green Great Wall or dozens of others in Asia like this man who planted an entire mangrove ecosystem, now I want to click that link, have seen billions of trees planted over the last two decades, although many died due to improper planting or post-planting management efforts. Ecosia often targets countries where uh, that are the most biodiverse, where tree loss directly corresponds with species loss. This has caused them to launch projects in Nicaragua and Peru, Burkina Faso and Malawi, uh, as, lo- as well as Indonesia and Australia. In 2018, for example, they created a tree nursery for 200,000 trees in Madagascar to help to help create a forest corridor leading from an isolated habitat in the ocean. In 2019, they created a forest agriculture project in Borneo to prevent locals selling the land to oil palm development. The story goes on with more details of the work that they've done. But congratulations, though, on 100 yeah. million trees. That's amazing. And I'd encourage people to find that one at the Good News Network just to see the picture. It's pretty yeah, startling. It's wild. It's wild. Uh, next one. Superhero brings smiles to 100,000 sick children and families healing himself since mom died of cancer in 2009. Superpowers like X-ray vision, the strength of a locomotive, or the ability to fly may be uplifting in a Marvel Marvel movie, but what better skill could uplift a victim in the real world than bringing smiles to children who are desperately ill? That's how one man in a Spider-Man costume fulfills his mission at children's hospitals all across America. And and with his visits to Alaska and Hawaii last September, he has now played the role in all 50 states. It's all part of the fun for Yuri Williams and his Long Beach, California nonprofit, A Future Superhero and Friends, which not only counts hospitals as its turf, but any underserved community. Yuri has organized blood drives, toy drives, and movie nights, all while donning superhero costumes and a heart of gold. They don't even call me by my real name anymore. It's just Spidey or Spider-Man, he said. (laughs) Yuri decided to conjure smiles for suffering children as a result of his own healing journey. The idea to be a hero for those in the frightening frightening grip of a serious illness came about during his long bout of grief due to his mother's battle with cancer. He decided that the best way to deal with his sadness was service to others. 
and he has since touched the lives of tens of thousands of people. His surprise visits give the patients who are sometimes in a dark place emotionally the ability to be happy again and let down their guard. And so there's more to that story. But man, what a coming out of his own grief, going ahead and and, and brightening the day of so many others. What a that's another amazing story. This this website's the best, man. <laughs> it really is. And we're going to end on a, a heartwarming note. The headline reads, since leaving the KKK, this veteran now spends his time volunteering for anti-hate mission. Since <laughs> Army veteran Christopher Buckley used to be a national security leader for the Ku Klux Klan, but now he is using his time to spread compassion and racial understanding. Buckley says that he first developed racist attitudes because of his rough childhood in Cleveland, Ohio. After joining the Army and serving overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq for 13 years, he began hating Muslims as well. Upon returning home to Walker County, Georgia, he became an honored official in the Georgia White Knights chapter of the KKK. Thankfully, after he befriended a man named Arno Michaels in 2016, his passion for white nationalism came to an end. Arno Michaels was a former member of one of the largest racist skinhead organizations in America. He managed to unlearn his hateful tendencies and now volunteers for Parents for Peace, a nonprofit dedicated to protecting youngsters from racist ideologies and helping white nationalists to let go of their dangerous stereotypes. Thanks to his friendship with Michaels, Buckley left the KKK and began exposing himself to black Muslim and refugee communities. Their compassion towards Buckley spurred him to become a volunteer with Parents for Peace, and he now spends his time helping youth and adults find the exact same transformation that he found in yeah. empathy and kindness. In fact, there's even a video that's embedded in the article that I would highly recommend you check out because it's just one of those stories that is so touching and so needed, especially in like the kind of yeah. climate that we find ourselves in right now. I don't know. You said it already, but I, I love this website because I, I haven't seen anyone sharing any of those stories. They, those are not stories that I tend to see on Twitter or Facebook. And I have all sorts of theories as to why that is. But uh, I highly, highly recommend you head on over Absolutely. to the goodnewsnetwork.org. That means, though, Brian, this show is in the books. It was not a bad one. It's over. No, it's, I, I, it's, I it's over. We, I, should, we should do I it, it manageable. Yeah. You, want, you want to try it again tomorrow? <laughs> I will be here. Let's do it. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. As always, for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.